Hello, folks out there in Best World. Uh, it's Lynn Hilton here again with the Best Podcast, and I'm very excited today to have two guests, not one. So we've got two for the price of one. We have Laurel Irene and Dr. David Harris from Voice Science Works. And, uh, you know, we've done work before together and um, met over various different continents. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm they're coming over to Europe and to England very soon and I wanted to find out what they're actually up to and uh, what sort of events are happening so that hopefully you guys can see them in one of the places that they're going to be. So it's lovely to see you again. So good to see you. And hi, everyone. Yes. Of course, they can't see us, but uh, they can certainly hear us. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. yes. So very briefly, um, I'm... Whoever wants to answer this, I shall leave it to you to decide. Could you explain what Voice Science Works is and how it came about? Uh, yeah, so um, Voice Science Works is our educational organization. It started out mostly as a web resource um, for all things voice research and voice science related, um, a hub to find other people's cool research and what they're doing, and then articles, videos, materials. Is trying to get this information out there in a free, accessible, more fun, uh, playful way. We like to say we translate uh, the complexities of contemporary research to make them more accessible to the everyday practitioner. Yeah, and it um, the project was born, actually, the summer that we met. We met at Ingo Tietze's Summer of Ecology Institute in Salt Lake City about um, five and a half years ago. And we fell in love with the subject matter and also with each other that summer, um, <laughs> as it goes. And we came away wanting to share, you know, what we've done such a deep dive on um, with Dr. Tietze and all these, you know, in the lab, dissecting the larynx people, um, that heavy kind of research. Um, but we were working with choirs, we we're working with young people, and we're like, how are we going to apply this right away? How are we going to, in a 30-minute rehearsal, introduce one concept and immediately get people singing? Um, so it was really born out of that desire to translate it right away and to bring it back to music, bring it back to voice and expression and communication um, immediately. Mm. So, um, Laurel, you're a singer, but David, would you call yourself a singer or um, composer? I, I mean, I know you do multiple things. Yeah, we, we both do a whole lot of things. And, um, you know, we were singers first. I suppose you sing before you conduct and before you write <laughs> most of the time or do some sort of performance. So, yeah. Um, and, in fact, one of the reasons that we were both attracted to voice science was because of personal frustrations with our own uh, vocal growth, and then in my case, also personal frustration with um, the vocal growth of the people that I was leading. So the, um, just the traditional language had had served me to a point, but then I, there were some walls that I couldn't get over without knowing a little bit more about what the voice was doing. And when I knew a little bit more, I wanted to know a lot more. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so most of, uh, we like to tell people that everything that we teach, we use on ourselves first, and find the, um, the, its capacity to communicate, and then we share it with other people. So all of this stuff we're finding success with first and then 
um, enjoying sharing it with other people. Hmm. So, Laura, what took you down the science route? Because obviously it's not traditionally expected that a classical soprano goes all sciencey and vocal geeky. I mean, I would say similar to what David was saying, um, frustration that then maybe brought curiosity. Um, so always asking questions in voice lessons, um, going to so many different people. I, you know, I did a couple road trips where I drove across the United States and stopped and took voice lessons from lots of different people. And everyone was saying a slightly different thing or had their own slight different language. And I wanted something that would unify it all. Like this, you know, it sounds like these teachers are saying the opposite, but surely that's not true. We're just, the language we're using um, isn't objective or absolute. And so it was kind of a quest personally for me to find um, a way to unify all the different feedback I was getting as a singer. And Laurel's history is, as a vocalist is interesting too, because um, she's younger than me by 15 years, <laughs> which means that when she was coming up, she actually had some voice teachers who were sympathetic to um, new voice research, even if they weren't themselves very deep into it. And so some of the messages that she received early on said to her, you know, there's, there's stuff here, there's anatomy, there's acoustics that you can be aware of. It's not just lift your soft palate or breathe from the diaphragm. And so um, I, I think that, I mean, I've heard you say that had a, an impact on kind of just the structure that you understood as a vocalist to begin with. Whereas, you know, I only got the palate and the diaphragm <laughs> and sing sharper and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so came into my um, adult learning I think in a place that was very confused, kind of what Laura was saying, everybody's got a different version of the same thing that's not really getting us there. And so not only is it confusing, but it's frustrating on top of confusion. Mm. Yeah, I've got the sing through a hole in the head and mm -hmm. imagine the notes floating on water. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, but it's not making me sing any better. <laughs> Where was it LSU, one of her road trips? Somebody said, no, is it Shenandoah? Somebody pejoratively was talking about choir directors saying they're, the best thing that they can offer to a vocalist is changing the color of the drapes or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like the only thing we control over changing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it's not wrong. It's, uh, there is an element of when we try and communicate, you know, we often use imagination. And if there's no kind of structure behind it it can get really lost really quickly so mm -hmm. yeah so from a personal point of view then because i know that the uh summer vocology program is very sciencey like as in proper yeah, physics and calculations and equations etc so for you laurel what were the immediate practical things that you were able to apply to your singing that you wouldn't have got if you hadn't done that course? Um, I think that the course was really a starting point. Like we actually, I think, had to do a lot of our own translating and teasing it out and playing with stuff. Because um, it is like what you're describing, the equations and the dissecting and the physics stuff, like that's, it is this whole kind of other brain space. And so to 
draw the bridge to now what what does this mean about the vocal exercise I do? What does this mean about the way I hear my own sound and the way I learn? Um, I think that's the work we've been trying to do is to create those bridges. Um, but I would say overall, it just kind of helped me to change my outlook to um, an outlook of questioning. And, you know, when Ingo Tietz is going, wow, I actually don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question. His, his humble presence and everyone else, um, the colleagues you, you meet at a place like that, um, everyone's curious, everyone is kind of saying, you know, there's not a solid answer, but we're at least gonna ask and try to investigate in, in a way that's informed scientifically. And so I think that more than any, the immediate impact was just kind of um, that a freedom that that questioning brings as a singer. Yeah, and, and that's actually enormous in mm. the vocal world because of all the pressure that historically vocal instructors and singers have had, have had about having to know having to be perfect, having to, you know, it, the way people talk about voices is either you're, you hung the moon or you're trash. You know, <laughs> there's not this space to be curious and to, to explore in, in, in the way that traditionally people have talked about voices. And so um, just being able to be curious and letting that be your kind of first entry point daily into your voice um, is really exciting. And then also like Laura was saying about the, translating the the science um you know when we perform when we sing we can't be thinking about the equations so a, a lot of the work we do is um through what we're reading in neuroscience it's through um kind of using the understanding of the information to create a body response um through practice and through listening um in fact a huge part of what we do it comes through the ears first because the ears train the voice um, if you let them. So um, that's, and, and the images we use, uh, we, we spend a lot of time creating images that kind of speak clearly with a lot of information, but without a lot of having to unpack them. You know, we're, we're really trying to get people into a place where they can absorb and respond to, uh, you know, depths of information um, with one thought eventually you know because <laughs> that, that's what we have to do when we sing is just do it and teach yeah mm -hmm. so as, yeah as teachers too and i think that's another point that laurel made about mm. needing to spend time unpacking it and making it our own even what we bring to people you know we'll get you down the road a certain amount of, of space but uh then there's a, a process of having to integrate it into your own practice that we've been playing with a lot how to uh invite people into that daily curiosity and give them um, ways of uh, integrating um, the new ideas that we have into their practice so that they can immediately start using them. And, and that's been an interesting process too, because everybody's going to integrate differently or not at all. They'll think, oh, okay, I got it. And then go back to what they've done before, which is typical human behavior. So that's been an interesting part of our discovery too. So what's your goal with your trip over to Europe in the next couple of weeks? Um, well, we're super excited just to come back. We did our first international tour to Europe last June, and um, we got to work in your studio in London with Basque people, and then we also went to Slovenia, Malta, and Ireland. And then this trip we'll do uh, 
York, Belgium, Cork, and Liverpool. Um, and so, yeah, we love having the chance to travel. We love that, you know, just by putting up this website five years ago, we've connected with people across the globe and gotten to share information, hear their stories. So we love getting to go make those connections in person. Um, as far as the workshops we're going to be giving, um, we're really excited about this kind of new way of using the overtone analyzer, where it's not just um, not just a visual, not just a way to explain and dissect and you know really understand form and values, um, but as a, a listening tool that does the work for you. That's the feedback we keep getting: is that when we use an overtone analyzer like Voce Vista and filter out certain overtones and create a listening exercise for the singer, their voice changes without them knowing that it did or how or why, it just does it. And it's an amazing process to watch and be a part of. So we're really excited to be sharing that process in these workshops. So how much science do you need to know in order to be able to understand what you guys will be doing in the workshop? Well, we kind of like it because you actually wouldn't even have to know that much. Like you could just, if you're like, I want to come in blind, um, you know, I want to sound like Jennifer Hudson. Okay, I'm going to look at her, you know, harmonic signature. Here's mine. You can literally just make the colors match. You can know that much. Like, oh, I can just move these little knobs until I look like her and then listen to that new harmonic signature. And that's actually going to have an amazing effect on me. But because, you know, most of the people we work with are really curious and want to also know why we get into um, the, you know, the nuts and bolts behind the scenes as well. Um, but for the effect to work, you really actually just have to listen, mm -hmm. which is cool. Yeah, the, what we end up doing with um, the voice analyzer, Bocha Vista has a filtering tool, like Laurel said, and you can turn up the different uh, filter boxes. So you end up electronically doing what your body does through the vocal track, creating a new acoustic output. And so um, we've, over the past several years, in fact, even since we saw you last year, um, we've honed the way we talk about um, the different aspects of sonic output uh, from the voice. And, um, and by just looking at the analyzer and talking about the different uh, Harmonics, regions the regions sound. of sound, we'll call them. Um, we are able to explain more about the vocal folds and more about the vocal tract. And, and so we bring that information in. But like Laurel said, we start with the visual. We start with the auditory, um, the thing that you can actually see. And then experience. Experience. Yeah. And then as we experience it and, and hear the differences, then we add information about this is what this thing is. So rather than saying, um, you know, this is what a foreman is. We say, do this thing. The reason that's doing that is because this energy boost, which we call a foreman, is impacting this harmonic. And so um, actually, yeah, you don't have to know those words and those concepts before coming in. We've also heard a lot of people say, through this process, those concepts and terms start to make sense for the first time, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. Because again, you can come in blind and, and make some sense of it. But if you've got a lot of information that you've been trying to work with and it hasn't been making sense, all of a sudden when you're hearing it, you go, oh, well, that makes sense to me. So now I can call it something. Mm. And so. singers in particular are so used to going by how something sounds yeah. and imitating, mm. imitating something. Yeah. yeah. 
So, David, how have you been using this information in choirs? Because I know you're going to be doing some work with choirs in um, Ireland, right? Yeah, it's actually super fun. Um, there are the, the kinds of things we do with individuals, we just tailor for choirs. So we'll have the group sing a unison uh, into the analyzer and then play with that. Um, we've got several games that are really illuminating and that... Um, you know, for for ensemble singing, whether it's three people or 400, there's always a goal at a certain kind of unity. And um, the choral traditional terminology, blend, balance, lock, those kinds of things um, is confusing in a way because what am I blending? What am I balancing? You know, it, it often tends to shut a voice down or tune people toward a very specific way of singing. So when we use the, uh, the listening first, um, their ears are guided. Uh, we use a lot of straw phonation so that they're not hearing each other as much as they're hearing the recording. And then um, through that kind of guiding, the ensemble sound starts to lock simply because their ears are all focused on a certain harmonic, for example. And they're really excited about that. And it, it's like decades of work happen in two minutes. Um, it, it's what it feels like. <laughs> and, and because they've had that experience now, you can build on it and come back to it and add things around it. So we play games with them that uh, help them find different resonance strategies. And, um, and then, you know, with ensemble tuning, because you have multiple pitches at once, we talk a lot about um, foul choice uh, and why and um, we show where certain harmonics align, um, which is super exciting when people in ensemble here for the first time, you know, my seventh harmonic aligning with your third harmonic aligning with their, you know, sixth harmonic, whatever. And, and hearing that cluster as a clear sound, all of a sudden like, Oh, wow. I have something to focus on. So there's, there's lots of really exciting, interesting ways to apply um, the same approach through the ears. And then also talk about this is why that's happening. And, um, when you use this resonant strategy, it's going to sound and feel like this. Now listen to it within the ensemble, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I, we also have been really excited about, um, we did our first festival this uh, this August in Los Angeles, uh, the Neo Voice Festival, New Explorative Oratorio. And so it was for composers and vocalists, and everyone sung in this big ensemble, and we did voice science workshops every day. And <clears throat> that exploration was all about how much can the voice do? How much can I ask when I write for the voice? How many different kinds of sounds can I make? Um, and I think that exploration is really new um, for a lot of people who would be considered choristers or choral singing that can have a really narrow definition. So to be playing in a choir with overtone singing, growls, rattles, screaming, um, theatricality, like all those things, we're exploring the whole voice, but we're also kind of, you know, shaking loose some of those uh, more rigid choral boundaries people often put up. So yeah, and I, I think the other thing that really excites me about the directions we're going is that these kind of explorations we hear over and over again, you know, people say they didn't feel free to explore. They say they felt judged when they made sound. They, you know, especially in ensemble settings, if there's a conductor saying, no, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. No, that's wrong. The level of judgment that you feel and that you in, internalize as that experience is so massive, either as a soloist or as an ensemble member. 
And so, so much of what we're exploring um, kind of gives people permission to let the judgment go and to simply let their voice be what it is and, and to go back to that idea of curiosity and exploration. And um, ultimately, that's the thing I think that I'm most excited about because that's where it hits people on a human level. Yeah, That's where people feel free to be themselves and to say, this is who I am right now and I'd like to explore that now. I'm assuming that you also have to educate the MD, the conductor, as well, right? Yeah, that's the funniest thing when we <laughs> do choral workshops. Sometimes the music director will say, oh, I'm going to go away. You know, you guys just do this for a while. I'll be back. Yeah. Like, no, no. <laughs> <That'll> <laughs> you actually have to do the thing too. Um, because, yeah, they have to guide it. It's, it's a symbiosis. And um, as a conductor over the last, oh, since Laurel and I have been working together, so five plus years, um, I have become a very different ensemble leader because one of my main goals now is to create space for others to be curious and to explore and to work together in these more intimate ways that's driven by them. Uh, so I'm much less likely to say to them, here's the problem, fix it. And much more likely to say, what do you hear? Or make this sound together. What do you notice? Those kinds of things. And so, um, Again, traditional language around ensemble leadership um, almost requires the ensemble leader to uh, have the mentality of the fixer. To, and, and it's a real pressure because you have to know everything and you have to tell everybody what's wrong. And so you're constantly nitpicking at yeah, people. Like your worth is defined by how many things you can see that are wrong. And it's how quickly really, you can stop them yeah. and tell them to fix it. <laughs> it's not really, like you've said, that's not really fun for you. Mm -hmm. You don't want to do that. So make first enjoying the rehearsal yourself is almost yeah. like the goal. <laughs> and, and there's a, you know, with all of the judgment that we do, there's a reverse issue that if something is that potent in your body and usually fear driven because you're worried that you're going to mess up and not notice what's wrong, um, we end up hyper-focused. So we only hear the things that we feel like we can check the box for. And so our flexibility goes way down. And um, if you're an ensemble leader, the ensemble gets driven into corners where they, they really can't escape because you've kept them there so that you can make sure you're checking the, the right wrong box. So yeah, it's a huge exploration for ensemble leaders to, to begin to let their ears guide them and to begin to let curiosity and exploration be a regular part of rehearsal. Yeah, I think also the other thing that's obviously a contributing factor is that a lot of conductors don't actually understand how voice is created and may not understand though the fundamentals of form and harmonic tuning, which actually I feel like in some ways you really actually need even more when you're working with a choir situation than you do with a yeah. soloist. Yeah, because of all the stuff we were just talking about. And I, they just like with traditional voice teacher language, traditional ensemble, vocal ensemble leader language, um, accomplishes some of those things kind of by default because for people were just listening and saying, do this, do that. So vowel modification has been a conversation in choirs forever but it's just become this weird Frankenstein that, that typically leads people into weird places uh, because of, you know, 
what somebody heard and said, try that, became a dogma that then got doubled down on and became something that it wasn't. But it's the dogma that was taught, so they do it. Um, I have lots of friends who I've seen, you know, reiterate things that create a different sound in the ensemble than they're interested in, but all they know how to do is say the thing they were taught to do. And that's a really tricky place to be. If you're stuck in traditional language to the point that even though you hear it, you hear something different than what you're asking for. All you know how to do is ask for the thing you know how to ask for. <laughs> so I have a lot of compassion actually for the entire field. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts then on vibrato in a choir situation? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we let the soprano? Um, yeah, we've we've been enjoying kind of just shifting that conversation to, you know, a sound happens and there's so much in that sound. Vibrato is one of the things. And it seems like everyone is accounting for the whole, everything happening in that sound and saying, oh, vibrato is the problem or, you know, no vibrato, less vibrato. When really I'm more interested in hearing, well, what's the color of the sound? What's the harmonic signature? Maybe that's actually what you're not interested in. And maybe we could shift that. And if I shift that, vibrato or not, isn't really that important. It was more, you were hearing something else you didn't like and you went, ah, vibrato, just take it all away. So I don't know, we're trying to zoom out from that conversation a little bit and listen past or deeper than just the vibrato you're hearing. Yeah, and we found that when um, multiple times, people who sing with significant vibrato, when we um, filter the sound to include fewer harmonics overall, one or two, maybe three, um, they're much less likely to use vibrato to create that sound. And so uh, we've started to, like Laura was saying, we started to consider that the more rich uh, harmonic signatures that people use tend toward encouraging vibrato in, in many circumstances, not all. Um, and likely because the voice needs to vibrate in that second oscillation to help manage all of the load or something. We're trying to figure out why, but, um, so when you simply encourage, uh, uh, less simpler complex, yeah. yeah, simpler sound, then, then it encourages less vibrato and, and in a way that if there is a little vibrato, you don't notice and choir directors, um, at least of my generation and younger, uh, have started taking it, and at least in America, have <laughs> started taking up a new conversation around vibrato that says, you know, a little is fine, but don't let it wobble, or just sing freely, or let air go through, all these different words that really means they want a simpler harmonic signature. Um, and then, you know, so we don't really say no vibrato, we don't really say straight tone, we say listen for this. Um, and, and people tend to go there. Plus, I mean, those, the styles that typically use less vibrato um, are so much in people's ear now. Um, I mean, the, the British Choral School has created such a brand on Renaissance music, and everybody who sings in choirs knows what that sounds like. Um, so if you say, you know, sound like Brits, they'll do it. <laughs> um, and it's in their ears. So it's again, it's one of those things. Um, if you can, if you can encourage the harmonic signature that you're interested in, the voice will follow. Rather than telling people to shut their voice down. Yeah. yeah. But I'm wonder, I'm thinking also that 
maybe that let's get rid of the vibrato is just one of those things that conductors go, oh, yeah, that's one thing I have to do. Let's, you know, something exactly. I can yeah. do. And, and you know how to say it. It's really obvious, you know, so it feels like you're ticking the box real quick, yeah. I know you were getting into the neuroscience a little bit more and neuroplasticity. Are you, have you developed that any further? Is that something you'll be bringing up? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about that research. Um, and just, yeah, the idea that you can learn about all the little ticking parts of the system, but if you don't understand how the system learns, then it's kind of like a moot point. So um, it really, um, David's been doing a lot of that research just almost as like a personal passion and then bringing it into our work. Yeah, it's super exciting um, what neuroscientists are currently working on, how they're sharing it, and then what it means for our experience. And that, that will be a part of our, our Europe tour as well. Um, acoustics and then this, you know, how the system runs and uh, re relating to it, for example, one little nugget is that um, in the principles of neuroscience, the most recent edition, there's a lot of conversation about how um, the the brain processes sight, sound, body feedback, emotion before it ever before that information ever gets to um, anywhere near the parts of the brain that would make it a thought, and it, and what the body gets from that information before it gets to thought is significant. And it's significant about telling us who we are, how we relate to the world and how we're going to respond. Um, and that's all in the kind of lower part of the brain, but so much information is being teased out. So we've, we've come up with some games. Um, I actually did it with kindergartners yesterday and it worked great <laughs> and with adults um, that just helping people kind of open their awareness to the fact that, a lot of how we see ourselves is happening way before we think it. And so like, what does that mean for us? How do we relate to it when we can't think about it, but we can be aware of it. Um, yeah. And, and especially with sound, like being singers, like that sounds, the first job of sound in your brain is to tell you where you are. So where, you know, how far away is that? Which direction is it? Um, and so, yeah, like kind of just diving into these more like, primal responses to sound and the way we hear and the way the ears information is organized um it's been really interesting so um can you give us a taster of what's happening on the tour so that anybody who might be interested to come along knows what to expect and also where you're going to be yes so we're taking off from los angeles in about a week we're gonna stop first at york university on october 9th and um, be working with the voice faculty and voice students there. Um, but yeah, if you're in that area, we, you know, shoot us an email. We can see if that workshop could open up to the public. Um, and then we'll pop over to Belgium, um, a little town right outside of Brussels that I cannot pronounce. Korchijk, <laughs> I believe. Um, and that's on October 12th. We're going to be presenting at the EBTA Belgium um annual conference we're super excited about that and you can register for that as well if that's in your area and then we'll pop over to cork ireland and we're going to be there for about a week we're going to be working with the choirs of lorna moore and serena stanley and they were actually came over to our festival in august we loved so much getting to work with them and 
they were an amazing presence so we're excited to correspond and um, we're going to be doing some one-on-one -on -one work with some uh, individuals in cork as well yeah you the want to sign up for a slot yeah. yeah do a little construct variety with all the choirs and great and then um in liverpool with uh kaya hirsted carney we're going to be doing a vast uh weekend um so that's october 19th and 20th we're presenting the afternoon of the 19th and then Kaya's going to do an intro session and then work with people on sunday as well so and that you can sign up for on the fast website well that's fab it's so lovely to catch up with you i'm really sad i'm not going to actually see you physically it's a super busy time for me um while you're coming um but you know with the wonders of uh, internet, we get to see each other anyway. Right. But there are no scones on the internet. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right, yes. Um, well, you might have to talk to Kaya about something Norwegian. I know. Then. <laughs> A lutefisk or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, that was... Uh, that was just very random. I can't. I don't know what overcame me that particular weekend that I felt like I needed to cook scones. Was that something you requested? Had you requested yeah, it? Yeah, we were talking. <laughs> oh, okay. You, you got the message loud and clear from us. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're working with my subliminal <laughs> mind. I don't even know that you're ordering me to do I know, this. Tonight. <laughs> Who knows? I might find myself cooking scones and next thing you know, I'm posting them to you up in Liverpool. It's funny, we've affectionately called the work we're doing with choirs choral hypnotism. Yes. It feels a lot like that. <laughs> Is that something to do with the tuning into the uh, those frequencies? Yeah. Okay, so I'm very excited that you guys are still continuing to evolve and develop this work because I think it's super important. And I really love the fact that you're making it so accessible and practical as well, you know, that people can walk away and go, yeah, I can apply that to my voice or my student's voice or my choir. It's um, really, really important because I think there's a lot of people who get put off by the more sciencey science aspect of science and and feel like they can't figure it out for themselves. So you're really helping them make that translation happen. All right. So, yeah, I look forward to uh, hearing how it all goes. And thanks very much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, and have a, a, have a great tour. Thank thanks. Yes, yeah. hope to see some of you there. Great yes. to see your face and hear your voice. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Bye.